a little bit about the bio in your bulletin. I'm, I feel kind of weird about bios in general, and I, I didn't write this particular one, so uh, since it's in there, I'll give you a little more context. Um, for the last six years, I've been teaching English at uh, K-12 schools in Eldersburg, northwest of the city. And uh, that's about to change, because this week, I accepted a job at the Helping Out Mission downtown. Now, if, you've, uh, if all you've seen is their billboard on 83, uh, you might think that they are a overnight shelter or a soup kitchen. And they, they do those things, and they've, they've done those things for 130 years. But for the past 20 years or so, the main thing they've done is an um, intensive 12-month gospel-powered addiction recovery program for men. Uh, and um, and it's, it's awesome. In fact, uh, a few of our deacons uh, volunteer down there. And... Um, so according to this bio in the bulletin, Helping Out Mission has hired me as a full-time Charlie Chaplin impersonator. That's um, misspelling of my job title, which is chaplain. Uh, and, and I'm going to be doing some, uh, doing some Bible teaching, tweak, helping tweak the curriculum, some digital media stuff, and just, just walking with guys on that, that long, hard, narrow path of, of freedom from addiction. And for many of them, life in Christ. I'm, I'm uh, so honored to be able to, to serve those guys. And I, I lo love your prayers. Please pray for me. I start tomorrow morning. So this month, we're, uh, we're looking at Jesus' prayers and teachings about prayer in the Gospel of Luke. And the series is called Persistent Prayer because that is the pattern uh, of Jesus' life. He prayed in all kinds of situations. He even snuck away to pray, uh, as Craig uh, preached to us last week. But persistent prayer wasn't just Jesus' pattern, it was, it was also his teaching. Jesus wants us to persist in prayer. Uh, and in our passage this week, he gives us some, some real, some solid encouragement in that direction. I don't know about you, but I feel like a novice at prayer. I am so easily distracted uh, when I'm praying, so easily discouraged. And, uh, and as I was studying this passage this week, it, it, it was a real encouragement for me. And I, I hope it will be for you, too. So I'm going to read the passage now. This is from the book of Luke, chapter 18, starting at verse 1 and going through verse 14. And he told them a parable to the effect they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, 
This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It seems like everyone's talking about justice right now. Have you noticed? I mean, the, the recent series of deaths of unarmed black men at the hands of police uh, have ignited this whole series of protests and conversations about justice-related issues, appropriate and inappropriate use of force, police community relations, um, you know, outright racism and, and, and uh, unconscious racial biases, right? Uh, justice for Freddie Gray, right? That's one of the, that's one of the, the cries, you know, the slogans, the, uh, the signs that I've seen. The tragic shooting uh, of nine of our brothers and sisters uh, at a prayer meeting in Charleston um, has many people crying for the killer to be brought to justice, right? Uh, and the Supreme Court majority opinion that, that legalized same-sex marriage in all 50 states uh, this month, uh, the majority opinion framed that issue in justice terms as well. I, uh, I'm not on Facebook, but I heard someone say that uh, it looked like a war had broken out in their Facebook feed between uh, the Confederate States of America and a Skittles factory. And, and all in the name of justice, right? But these are serious issues, aren't they? Uh, we, we all want to be treated fairly, right? We, we want justice uh, in, our, in our lives, in our, in our communities, in our society, even if we can't all agree on what that looks like. And um, what do we do when life isn't fair, right? What, uh, all, uh, what do we do when justice is slow in coming? How can we endure the strain and the pain of life in this world as it is? In these two parables, Jesus shows us uh, how to pray for justice and pray for grace. And these are not unrelated prayers. So we're going to see just how they're related and how they can help keep us afloat in tough times. So let's jump right into the first parable about praying for justice. Uh, Look at verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So a parable is a story that teaches, right? It's a story with a point. Uh, and, and Luke, the author, actually gives us, the, in both of these parables, he gives us the point before he gives us the story. He's putting the cookies on the low shelf. Uh, verse 2, he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. This is not an impartial judge. This is an indifferent judge judge, all right? There, there, there is a sense in which God calls judges to be like no respecter of persons. Have you heard that phrase? Meaning that they shouldn't play favorites when weighing a case. But that's not what it means here. This judge just didn't give a hoot. I mean, he was, he was putting in his time. You know, you know if, if he was in our day, maybe he was, you know, riding out the last few years till retirement or something. But he was, he was checked out. And um, philosopher and Holocaust survivor, uh, Elie Wiesel, uh, said that the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. And that's, that's the problem with this, with this judge here, right? He wasn't motivated by anything, you know, not, not, by, not by love for God or love for his neighbors. Verse 3, And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. So here's the widow's request, right? And, and it, it parallels, I think, the, the, the prayer that Jesus assumes we will have, right? Give me justice against my adversary. 
what happens uh, in verse 4? For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. This widow is great. She reminds me of, um, actually, uh, my next-door neighbor, who's herself a widow in, in her 90s. Uh, she pays her bills with money orders, right? And about three months ago, she mailed out 10, uh, 10 money orders at once to pay with bills, and none of them got to their destination. Uh, let me tell you, she has been back and forth between the post office and the money order clerk uh, and anyone else who has any, any connection to this matter. Three months have gone by, and she is giving them no rest until she figures out what happened to those money orders and, uh, and gets her money back, right? That, and that, that's, that's, what, that's what this widow here is like, right? She's persistent. Jesus doesn't give the specific complaint uh, of this widow in his parable, but it, it did, it reminded me, think, of some, um, some prayer emails, actually, that I've, I've gotten from time to time from International Justice Mission. So has anyone heard of, of land grabbing, property grabbing, land grabbing? This is a, a big issue around the world. Um, and if you're, if you're a married woman uh, or a child in sub-Saharan Africa and your husband or your father dies, you might be in danger of having your house and your land stolen by powerful neighbors and relatives. Uh, and this is, this is often done by violence and, and often with no consequences. So uh, in Uganda, IJM, International Justice Mission, has an office that's working to change that. And here, here's how they describe what's happening. This is from their website. If a widow refuses to leave, she and her children may be chased out violently. Women and children we have represented report being menaced, threatened with machetes, and physically assaulted. Some have had their homes destroyed by perpetrators, intent on making their property uninhabitable. Perpetrators of land grabbing are often related to their victims, so police may dismiss cases as a, quote, family matter. Law enforcement agencies lack the training and resources to meet the overwhelming need. With no help from the justice system, survival itself becomes a struggle for a victim of land grabbing. Homeless, she may be forced to relocate somewhere dangerous or be extremely vulnerable to exploitation as she searches for a home. She may not be able to afford or access food, medical care, or other vital needs for herself or her children. This is serious. I mean, this is, this is happening now. Women in these situations need justice, right? And they need it quickly. So IJM works to restore uh, widows and orphans to their homes by bringing case, criminal cases against perpetrators and providing aftercare for the victims and training and mentoring local law enforcement so the laws against land grabbing actually get enforced. Um, this, this it's, it's, it's quite possible, right, that, that actually something along this order, right, uh, was what, you know, the widow in Jesus' parable was facing. Uh, you know, they, widows in that time and place were in a similarly, maybe if not more, sort of disadvantaged uh, situation. By the way, since we're about talking about praying for justice, if you want to pray for justice in specific situations like this, you can sign up for IJM's uh, prayer email list. And, uh, and our church also has a prayer email list that you can sign up for by talking to Adrian at the church office. So how does Jesus wrap up this parable? Uh, verse 6, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. That's a rhetorical question there. Will he delay long over them? The, the implied answer is no. God is like a good parent. Uh, God is like a, a, a mom who runs to her daughter's cry because her older daughter is sitting on her younger daughter's head. All right? 
True story. God's like that mom. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not like the dad who's um, distractedly answering emails on his phone. No. Uh, not at all. God will give justice to them speedily. As soon as you hear that, though, you might be thinking, like, speedily, really? You know, God's justice doesn't often feel like it's coming speedily, does it? Uh, and the very next line um, is, is a beginning of a, of a help with that, right? It's, it gives us, gives us the perspective here. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is not off topic. Jesus is not, when, the first time I read it, I was kind of like, what? Why do he say that? He's not dropping a non sequitur. Because when will perfect justice be accomplished? Right? When will the kingdom come? When the king returns, right? The Son of Man, that's Jesus. It's easy to get frustrated when you're faced with injustice, uh, whether it's personal or systemic. I mean, when it seems like things aren't getting better, no matter how hard you try, when you're doing everything you can, it's easy to get either really angry or just really apathetic. Um, and what Jesus says here is so helpful because if he'd only said, keep praying, keep praying, keep praying, we tend to think it all depends on us. Uh, you know, and, and we'd freak out and we'd burn out. Uh, or if he'd only said, relax, you know, I've got this. I'm, I'm going to bring perfect justice when I return. I think we tend to check out or fade out or get complacent or apathetic in the face of injustice. But he holds these two things together. He says, keep praying for justice because I hear you and I care and I'm going to make it right. I've been talking in pretty generic terms about, about Jesus' return, about divine justice, but if you actually look at the places in the Gospels where he teaches about it, like the section right before this one in Luke, uh, there's a lot of talk about judgment and wrath. And God's wrath and judgment are pretty uncomfortable doctrines. I mean, they're pretty unpopular in our time and place. Here's the thing, though. You can't actually have justice without judgment. And you can't even have love without at least the, the, the possibility of wrath. What do I mean? How, how many times have you heard, right, that, that a God of love uh, couldn't possibly also be a God of wrath? Um, God is love, right? And God loves, uh, love affirms, right, while wrath condemns. Love embraces while wrath rejects. A Croatian theologian at, uh, at Yale named Miroslav Volf uh, used to think that, too, right, until, um, until the Bosnian War, actually. And here's what he wrote right after that. I used to think, I'm not going to try to do a Croatian accent, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the, former, of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against the God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. 
God is wrathful because God is love. And because on, on some level, you know, anger in general is, is a response to, to something that you love being threatened. Right? And it can, be, it can be inordinate. It can be kind of out of order if you love something too much, right? Or if you overreact, if you act disproportionately. But, but that, God doesn't have that problem. And he loves everything he has made. Okay, you, know, so you, may, you, know, you may say, but if you believe in a God of wrath and judgment, won't you be more likely to be wrathful and even maybe violent yourself? Not necessarily. In another place, uh, Wolf actually makes a case that the doctrine of God's divine judgment and justice is the best resource for nonviolence. Check this out. He says, If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many in the West. But it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die, along with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Now it was dense, but did you follow that? He's basically saying, you can't just say to people who've endured genocide, now, now, violence doesn't solve anything, right? That, that is not helpful. They want the blood of the guilty. And if I'm in that situation, right, unless I believe that there's a God who will eventually put all things right, I will take up the sword and get sucked into the endless cycle of retaliation. It's the logic behind that famous passage in Romans 12. Uh, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Only if I'm sure that there's a God who will right all wrongs and settle all accounts perfectly will I have the power to refrain, refrain from revenge. And it's, it's never easy, right? And, and Jesus ends this parable with a provocative question. When he returns, will he find faith on earth? That's something of a challenge, isn't it, right? It's, it's, uh, with this question, Jesus is challenging us. He's encouraging us to persist in prayer and faith until he returns. And by reminding us, us of his return, he's, he's recalibrating our sense of time. That's, that's what was going on in, uh, in the passage from James uh, that Jim read to us earlier. Uh, I'll just read two of those verses again. James writes, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James is not saying to step back. He's saying to stand firm. He's saying to, to let your roots go deep, because God is the master gardener, and we have yet to see the strange and beautiful fruit that he is growing in the mud of our ordinary lives. Uh, Jesus' disciple Peter makes a similar point in, uh, in his second letter. So Peter's writing about Christ's return, and he basically says, you know, haters going to hate, scoffers going to scoff, uh, saying things like, what's all this nonsense about Jesus coming back, right? It, it's been how many years now? Like, stop, stop kidding yourselves. Nothing's going to change. To that, Peter says this. This is in 2 Peter chapter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is remarkable. Now, if you're trying to find out exactly when Jesus is coming back, this whole like thousand years day thing is, is going to drive you nuts. But that's because God's not going to give you a calendar date, right? Like Jesus uh, didn't, didn't even know when he would be returning, at least during his earthly ministry. It's kind of like I, was try- well, like, I was trying to visualize, like, what is this like? And it's kind of like running a marathon without mile markers. Now, if you run races, you hate that analogy, right? Because, because the mile markers help you pace yourself. It's true, but you know what? Even if you don't have mile markers, like exact mile markers, you know this, a marathon has a finish line, right? Even if you don't know exactly how close that finish line is, you know that it's not moving, and you are, and if you keep going, You'll get there, even if it's crawling. So we don't know when Jesus is coming back. Big deal. The most any of us has left in our little mini races is 70, 80, maybe 90 years if you just graduated from Friends of Jesus. Uh, and the recipe for faithfulness is the same. It's the same whether you live for a few more days or a few more decades. It's the same whether Jesus comes back in two weeks or two millennia. So don't let the when, the unanswered when, distract you from the why. Because that's what Peter does say here. He tells us why God hasn't swooped in and straightened everything out already. Peter says, He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If it seems like God is delaying justice, it's because He's extending mercy to as many people as possible, right? Including you. He's patient towards you, Peter says. And this is how the first parable connects to the second. Because the other thing we need in order to endure, besides trusting in God's final justice, is to trust in God's mercy. And this brings us to the second parable in today's text. uh, The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. At first glance, you might not think that uh, these two parables have much to do with each other, but they are deeply intertwined. So the first parable shows us that if we want to persist in prayer, especially, especially praying for justice, And without burning out or getting bitter, uh, we need to trust that God will ultimately and finally bring perfect justice. But we need something else, too. We need what the tax collector in this next parable has, which is humility. And here's why this is important. You may be praying fervently for justice, right? You may care deeply, and you may work hard on behalf of marginalized people, but if that's all your prayer life consists of, you're in danger. You're in danger of becoming self-righteous. What do I mean? Well, think about it. When you're praying against injustice, right, you're, you're saddened or you're, you're ticked off about what's wrong in the world. And it's all too easy, right, uh, for that to turn into contempt, right, to, to bitterness. You're praying, God, stop these land grabbers, right? Protect these unborn children. Heal the racial divides in our city. And there are usually people to be angry at, right? The violent thieves or, or the abusive or absentee fathers, the, the blatant or the complete, complacent racists. And before you know it, you're angry at them, right? And more than that, you despise them. The Pharisees cared about justice. They cared about it fervently. And Jesus had this parable for them and for us. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. All right, so to give a little context here, 
Jesus is telling this parable to a mixed crowd uh, that includes Pharisees. They were a subset of Jews, like a sect, who had a really high view of God's law and emphasized strict obedience to it. And they were generally highly respected in Jewish society. On the other side of the story, you have a tax collector uh, who that society was universally despised. These were Jewish men who were collecting taxes for the occupying Romans. And they were actually allowed to demand whatever amounts they wanted on top of the already insulting Roman taxes. So imagine, uh, imagine a mafia henchman collecting for the IRS. Right? It's like a double shakedown. Plus, he was a traitor. So actually, it'd be like um, if Great Britain reconquered the US, har har, and, uh, and then employed, employed uh, American mafiosos to collect British taxes from us. I mean, it was bad. Right? And the collectors were the opposite of popular. So first, the Pharisee prays. And he prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. It's like, this guy. Uh, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I notice a few things. He's standing alone, uh, which, which is like a, like a, a metaphor for, for his heart, right? He's, he's, he's too good for anyone. He's thanking God, which should be a good thing, right? But for what? That I'm not like other men. And then he gives some examples of things he's not. And you've got things that liberals don't like, like extortion and injustice. And you've got things that conservatives don't like, like adultery and taxes. This guy is against all the things. But there's things he's for, too. Uh, he, he fasts twice a week, which isn't required in the, in the Torah, uh, in the Law of Moses. And he's extra generous. He tithes from everything he has, which also isn't required. There were exceptions. So this guy's kind of bragging about, about how he goes above and beyond. Like, notice all the eyes, all the eyes in the prayer. You know, I thank you that I am not like other men, blah, blah, blah. I fast and I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He seems to think God's pretty lucky to have a guy like him around. And here's where he went wrong. As he's praying, he doesn't actually have God in view. He's, looking, he's just looking around. He's comparing himself to others. And compared to other people, you know, he actually looks kind of good. But is that actually prayer? You know, he, he, it would be one thing if he were thanking God for protecting him from circumstances that might have led him to become a thief or an adulterer. But what he's doing here is actually basically giving a, a, he's, you know, doing a humble brag. You know, he's giving a long list of achievements. Contrast that with the tax collector's prayer. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This tax collector is obviously racked with guilt and shame. He, he, he knows he's a mess. He knows he doesn't deserve anything from God. And, and so how does he pray? He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's it. That's it. He acknowledges that he's a sinner, and he pleads for God's mercy. Is this a part of your prayer life? Prayer, prayer is a confession. We get some, I know we get some practice at it together here on Sunday mornings, uh, but what about the rest of your week? I, I'm not saying you should be as downcast as this guy all the time, right? But, but uh, are you grieved by your sins at all, right? Are you, even, are you even aware of them? Check out how Jesus concludes this parable. Verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you realize how scandalized Jesus' hearers uh, would have been by this reversal? 
Jesus was saying that this, this well-respected Pharisee, right, uh, this righteous man, was so focused on others and how he compared to them that he totally missed God's holiness and his own sinfulness. And he never even thought to ask for mercy. And so he will be humbled, Jesus said. He was a religious man, a very religious man, but he wasn't a justified man. The tax collector, on the other hand, was humbled by his sin. And, and he cried out to God for mercy. And he, Jesus says, will be lifted up, will be exalted. He's been justified, Jesus says. It's so interesting that Jesus uses that word justified. Uh, that doesn't occur a lot in the, in, in the Gospels. It's a lot in the, in the New Testament letters. But, um, but it's significant. I mean, being justified is more than just being forgiven, right? To be justified is to be given a whole new standing with God, a relationship a righteousness granted by grace. It's, it's, uh, it's not moral reform. It's not cleaning up your act. It's instantaneous. Jesus says he walks back to his house, a justified man. Now, in the next chapter of Luke, Luke 19, if you want to see uh, what happens when a real live tax collector gets justified, check that out. That's the story of Zacchaeus. I mean, he, he, begins, he does begin the journey of becoming a just man uh, by giving back the money he stole by extortion. But justification is free. It's instant. It's a gift. And Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. When will, when will that happen? You, know, you notice that's in the future tense, will be. It'll happen on Judgment Day, when Jesus returns. On that day, it won't be the good people who are in and the bad people who are out. It'll be the humble who are in and the proud who are out. And a key mark of humility is trusting God's mercy. Right, rather than your own awesomeness, your own righteous record. Now, Luke says that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. If you go to church, you know you're not supposed to do that, right? Uh, but right after that, there's another. There's this other thing. There's this clue, like a, kind of like a, almost like a like a test, right? To to whether we're really trusting in Christ or in or in ourselves. And it's this. It says, some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and, what, treated others with contempt. What's contempt? It's not just looking down your nose, right? It's, it's crinkling your nose in disgust. It's, it's the reaction that some of you have uh, to the Confederate flag and others of you have to the rainbow flag. It's almost instinctive, right? It's, it's a warning sign that you might be trusting in your own righteousness. Why is that? Because contempt says, I would never do that, Right? Like, I, like, who does he think he is? You know, or I can't believe she fill in the blank. You know, I wouldn't be caught dead doing that. It's, it's this, it's got the seeds of self-righteousness because you're so sure that you're fundamentally different from the thing that you despise. But are you? Are we? This is the deeper level of connection between the first parable and the second. Uh, we pray for God's kingdom to come. We pray for perfect justice. But do we really realize what we're asking for? I read to you earlier from that um, Croatian theologian, Miroslav Volf, who was writing about you know, the goodness of God's wrath in the face of, of terrible injustice. And in another place, he comes to realize that there's a danger that comes with a theoretical knowledge of God's wrath, and that is that we keep it at arm's length and fail to relate it to our own sin. Check this out. Once we accept the appropriateness of God's wrath, condemnation and judgment, there is no way of keeping it out there, reserved for others. We have to bring it home as well. I originally resisted the notion of a wrathful God because I dreaded being that wrath's target. I still do. 
I knew I couldn't just direct God's wrath against others as if it were a weapon I could aim at targets I particularly detested. It is God's wrath, not mine. The wrath of the one and impartial God, lover of all humanity. If I want it to fall on evildoers, I must let it fall on myself when I deserve it. Also, once we affirm that God's condemnation of wrongdoing is appropriate, we cannot reserve God's condemnation for heinous crimes. Where would the line be drawn? On what grounds could it be drawn? Everything that deserves to be condemned should be condemned in proportion to its weight as an offense, from a single slight to a murder, from indolence to idolatry, from lust to rape. To condemn heinous offenses but not light ones would be manifestly unfair. An offense is an offense and deserves condemnation. Do you see what this means? Right? If, we, if we want perfect justice, if we want divine justice, how will we escape condemnation? Now, maybe you, maybe you bristle right at the idea of sort of objective moral standards given by God. I, I get that. So let's do a thought experiment, though. Imagine you have a smartphone or a tape recorder or some kind of some kind, something that's always with you, and this recorder only captures moral judgments you make about other people. Okay, so imagine you eventually come to that epic moment where you stand before God as judge, and God just plays that recording. Imagine hearing, you know, your own words, how many thousands of words, all those moral evaluations, those judgments. How would you stand in light of your own moral standards? Because if you're anything like me, you, you wouldn't have a leg to stand on. And, and listen to these words from Romans 2. This is right on point. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God falls rightly on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? I think all of us have to admit that we have deliberately done things that we knew to be wrong. I mean, we can't deny it. So what can we do about it? Do you see the paradox here? In the first parable, Jesus, uh, we saw that the only way you can endure in seeking justice is to pray for divine justice. And in the second parable, we saw that the only way you can escape the hammer of divine justice is to pray for God's mercy. So how can those, things, how can those two things fit together? Like, How can Jesus promise both divine justice and divine mercy on the same day, on the day of his return? Through the cross. Because on the cross, the, the justice of God and the mercy of God meet. They meet. In the parable, when the tax collector cries out, have mercy on me, the verb there is an uncommon verb, an unusual verb that actually means to propitiate or to satisfy divine justice and divine wrath. The tax collector in the parable, he gets it. He's praying, God, atone for my sins. Save me. And on the cross, that's exactly what God does. And now anyone, anyone who comes to God on that basis, who comes to God for mercy, can walk home justified, free and confident, with nothing to fear on the day of judgment. This is the heart of the gospel, and it's no better place to be. So I'll end with that famous bit of Romans 3, and, and try to hear it with fresh ears in light of these two parables. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, 
he had passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray for justice and pray for grace. Oh, Father God, we thank you that you are both just and the justifier of everyone who has faith in Jesus. Thank you for being patient with us. Jesus, thanks for your parables recorded here that continue to help us, your people. Thank you for your costly love uh, that reconciles justice and mercy. Holy Spirit, help us to persist in prayer when we're discouraged uh, or distracted or angry or apathetic and shape us into more just and more merciful people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.